you're listening to Dialogues on 3CR Community Radio. Every Wednesday night at midnight. Good evening, you're listening to Dialogues on 3CR Community Radio on 855 AM. My name is Joe Raleigh. This week I'm your host and I'm going to be talking to Antonia Pont. Antonia Pont is a Melbourne-based writer of poetry, short stories and theoretical prose. She's also a senior lecturer in literary studies and in professional and creative writing at Deakin University. And she's the author of In Praise of a Plain Life, which is an essay that was recently published in the literary magazine The Lifted Brow. And we'll be discussing that today, along with many other things. So, Antonia, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Joe. So you write about this idea of, of living what you call a plain life. Um, so... I wanted to start by asking you what a plain life is and why that's appealing. So the idea of a plain life came to me, and I described this a little in the essay that um, that, that that brought this conversation into being. Yeah. Um, it was really a feeling. It was just a feeling of sort of the uh, a kind of static or noise or edginess or some some traditions even could say striving, a certain just dropping away of that where it just went a little bit quieter. And so I sort of thought of it as a as a kind of plainness that came in. And then I just wondered about this is this is this other feeling that life can have and it's not often that we access it and I don't feel like I access it particularly often, but but I kind of can catch it when it's there. And it was a very strong feeling at the time. I'd been looking at art. I think that's always a good thing to do um, at any opportunity. Look at art if you're not sure what to do. And um, <laughs> that's the first top tip. Um, yeah, and so it was more of a feeling. And it, 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 was, it, was very, um, it, was, it was simply a little bit less busy and complicated. So is the plain life something we should be striving for as our normality? I mean, what is it about the world as it currently is that would lead you to be fantasizing about this other place or world or life? Yeah, I'm not so much into the otherworldly because it creates that tension, I think. I think as soon as we set up another place, um, usually people want to strive for it, you know, and that, that kind of that, that immediately does something to us. It does something to the quality of our actions okay. and often our interactions. Okay. Yeah. In In a way, it's... It's it's about having a little break from striving for difference, if that makes sense. Okay. A different and better. I want a different and better house. I want a different and better job. I want a different and better partner. I want I want all these things, right? So there's something mm. about that kind of striving for difference, which um, can be energize can be of course energizing. Sometimes it's a clear decision, mm. but I think the way it exists is mostly as a kind of constant static, just kind of gnaws away at us. That kind of a kind of constant dissatisfaction of a certain kind. Okay. Oh, so it's actually it's actually existing in the kind of state that led me to just ask you the question: How should we? Why should we be striving for this pain <laughs> life that, that we're wanting to get away from? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, you're very quick. Yeah. You're very quick. <laughs> Excellent. So, but that, then that sounds kind of it's almost uh, what's the way out? Because if you're aware that whatever state you're existing in at the moment 
isn't ideal, how can you be in a better or a different kind of state, if that's the right, right way of putting it, without wanting to be in a different state? Well, this is a kind of, yeah, no, it's, it's, it hits into lots of paradoxes, I guess. And, and lots of spiritual traditions have all sorts of ways to try and assist people with this, I think. I think a lot of the things in various, let's say, spiritual traditions or practice traditions um, that can sometimes be attacked as counterintuitive or a bit silly or, you know, why are they doing that or that's ridiculous. Sometimes sometimes they come from sort of strong, I, that's my perception, really strong pedagogical um, sort of strategic ways to, to sort of assist this bind, the very bind that you kind of named, which is mm-hmm. um, we're very unhappy, so therefore we go, I'll, I'll strive to be less unhappy, and then I'll, I'll strive a lot and I'll want something different, and somehow this actually feeds feeds the beast of the unhappiness in a particular kind of way. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, for people listening, people come from various traditions, cultural and spiritual and so on, and often there are kind of gems hidden in those traditions that are very much trying to assist to make a little bit of breathing space in that bind, which can get quite tight. Okay, that's interesting. So what kind of traditions are you talking about? Um, I'm thinking of, I mean, I'm th- the first one that comes to mind is kind of Zen, with which I have some some um, familiarity. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's it's a classic thing in Zen, you know, the, the student is told to go away and look for the self, come back and bring me the self. And, you know, the student goes, okay, great, this is getting us somewhere. I'm going to find my true self. And they off they go with immense amounts of sincerity and goodwill and verve. They're, they're young and they go looking and it gets worse and worse because, you know, they, they're really struggling to find this self and they think they've found it and that actually just turns out to be a furphy and they keep going, it gets worse and worse and it's just they start to be like, that damn teacher, you know, this is a stupid question. This is a really stupid question. They've set me off on this thing. And then, of course, the teacher goes, very good. very good you didn't find the self well done (laughs) and in a sense you know it's like we have to go through the striving and the energy for that can actually bump us into you know in philosophy it's sometimes called aporia you know these these impasses that that feel so terrible but but sometimes they they kind of they kind of help us in a way they kind of open something up but they they i think they're a little bit there we experience them as a kind of anguish sometimes and a kind of suffering but um Sometimes I think they're a little bit different to another kind of grinding, grinding habitual suffering, which is a little different, you know. When we when we go looking, really looking, and we look with sincerity, then we can really hit impasses, but the impasses then kind of retroactively, if you like, reframe everything that we'd thought before that point, you know. So the student okay. says, yes, great, I'll go and find the self. Good idea, great project. But what, what the, the pedagogical trick is to say you know, go looking, you won't find it. And so what does that, what does that tell you then about right. the way you set your ego up or the way that we set ourselves up as a kind of permanency, which is only, which is only an appearance rather than having any kind of substance at a deeper level. Okay, so you're sort of questioning the conditions of the task itself and yes. the, the foundations of that rather than sort of blindly going ahead. Well, I think one does blindly go ahead if the pedagogy is yeah. clever. You know, one blindly goes ahead and it's, and it's not a sort of... Um, it's not to embarrass the student or waste their time. It's that the learning is really deep, you know, that you really, really get it and not because you've read it or someone's told you, but you, you get it. You, you, you go through it as a kind of ordeal of learning. Which is, which is where all of the best learning comes from, to actually have that experience. 
so many times growing up and I'm sure it'll it'll continue to happen I'll go through an experience really truly understand what that phrase meant that my granddad or my parents told me or something that I read somewhere and kept reading but never really found particularly meaningful you actually have to experience to understand the true meaning behind it absolutely I mean and that's the kind of argument I've got a paper about this called the organ of repetition which is sort of about the why why did we used to learn things off by heart you know, and it's really clear why that was a pedagogical strategy that seems to have fallen out of favour or it could be coming back into favour, who knows. But we learnt, them, we learnt things by heart because, you know, kind of cultural traditions had deemed that there was something in that thing, that poem, that statement, that aphorism, and the person at that moment couldn't possibly appreciate it. They're only seven, they're only 12, they're only whatever, even 40. But yeah. you learn the aphorism or you learn it and it's with you there. And then suddenly in a scenario, it's at hand and it all kind of crystallises and you're like, that's why, that's uh, what that line of the poem meant. But yeah. it's not the same if you had to Google it, you know? No. Because you wouldn't have it sort of echoing in your brain, kind of pointlessly echoing and making no sense and seeming a bit daft. And then suddenly things come together and, and, and it makes sense. It, it's recontextualized. Yeah. And I suppose the value of having that echoing around all of the time is that it eventually matches up with your own experience. And so that echoing learning sort of corroborates what you learned as an individual and almost solidifies it because you know that it's occurred in a wider context that has been deemed important by other people. So That's true. It, yeah, collect, it connects you to, to something bigger than just yourself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Absolutely. So you, you mentioned a few minutes ago uh, grinding suffering, I think was the, the phrase you used. <laughs> well, sometimes I say harrowing or gruelling suffering. <laughs> <laughs> I need some more adjectives. Yeah, grinding's good. <laughs> Is that something we're going through at the moment with our current lives and the way we're going about things? I, I, it's hard to say. I, I'm, I don't have the statistics or the research. I'm not making research, research of that nature to, to kind of verify in any way that I could claim confidently that this historical moment includes more of that grinding suffering than another one in another time. I mean, maybe that's not the point in a way. Um, I think suffering is part of the fabric of our existence in a, to a sense, and to a sense, and some of that is actually ontological. Let's say some of that is not not negotiable, and I think something like psychoanalysis is interesting because of that idea that you know you just want to get back to just normal levels of suffering. You know, the reason okay. you go to see a, you know someone to help you, a therapist, is is not so you can reach some happy happy place, but that you could maybe reduce levels of suffering that have, that have gone beyond, that are starting to disenable a person. Okay. So I don't think a, a life free of suffering, I mean, the Buddhists would say that's a contradiction in terms, that actually to live is to, is to encounter frictions all the time and to, to be a kind of a being with, with uh, um, ruptures and splits and, and difficulties. So that's, that's not so much the pathology, but it can reach then terrible levels. And, you know, it's, I think, our often... People are asking about, well, what's the right amount of suffering? You know, what's mm. the suffering that energises me and keeps me awake and whereby, you know, whereby I can question, question things, the world, my own, my own actions, etc. And then levels of suffering that are really, uh, really exceed that and, and disenable us, you know. Yes. Yes. Perhaps a useful question to ask is, is that suffering in some way involved in allowing you to have a reasonably good life? that isn't ultimately harmful to yourself or to other people? 
or is it pushing you over the other side of the line and actually causing a kind of decline and causing a net harm to yourself or to other people? And I th- that's right. I think I think it really also connects to an ethics and what that is for each person, for sure. Mm. Um, this question mm. of what people also have different tastes in suffering. You know, mm. the tough sufferings they they can make into enjoyments, for example. Or yeah. so that that's that's not really. Um, I think we can't general generalize. You know, the right amount of suffering, but yeah. And that, that kind of feeds into a, a sort of inverted commas healthy uh, variation in yeah, <laughs> in humanity. Of course, that's that's <clears> right. <throat> I, I I do I do find texts that really defend uh, a defend defend a variety of of emotional states. Really, you know, always mm-hmm. really uh, bolstering because I don't I don't want to get rid of my sadness and I don't want to get rid of my anger and I don't want to get rid of whatever my frustration, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's that's not the point. Mm. You know, that's not where the suffering comes in, I don't think. I think it's something, um, yeah, sometimes something more, I don't want to say mindless because that, that harks to another word I, I feel less comfortable with. But, yeah, it's something, I don't know that our, our emotions are the problem. Really. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although we think they are and often in familial structures we've been told that certain emotions are good to have and others aren't good to have. And, and I think the, I think in the essay I say that the younger generation, I feel, are possibly getting some education around this. It seems to be more part of it – always, it always did surprise me that we get instruction in mathematics and we get instruction in reading and we get even instruction in physical education. You know, there it says that we do some sport, we move the body, yes. but we don't get much instruction or at least not in my – schooling around emotional intelligence and that's changing i think yeah probably it'll have some hiccups as well as as people i know say that you know when a five-year-old tells you they have an anger problem it makes you go hmm that's sounding very complicated already right. <laughs> for yeah. a five-year-old to describe themselves <laughs> like that so you know yeah yeah, yeah. But, but like any any kind of new program, it, there, are, it. there is going to be... We may hit a sweet spot in the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I would agree. It feels right that emotions in and of themselves aren't the problem. They're not wrong. Um, but as we've touched on, there will always be people, either for genetic or psychological or social reasons, who will be subject to unfair suffering, um, you know, and you could call that mental illness um, on an individual level. That would be an, an individual pathology. But is it possible that a society or a group of people or humanity in a certain age could be suffering from a pathology which has an impact on our emotions? Yes, I I think for sure. I think for sure. I this is badly formulated, so I can probably say say one sentence and then leave it leave it at that. But I, I think there's an awful lot of bad thinking around, mm-hmm. you know, and I suspect that the accessibility of paradigms on the on the wonderful interweb that we all love is is tricky because um, nothing's to say that those paradigms. Uh, in which many sort of thick ideologies are kind of concealed or embedded or brought along with that those one needs so much discernment to to be able to pick the the kind of the self-help attitudinal solution to all your woes that is promised by often someone often someone with a financial investment you know often someone with a celebrity investment um, which is not necessarily bad but I, I see that happening and it's I, I sort of notice people around me getting very busy in those paradigms that often sort of a little bit defense defenselessly 
mm-hmm. um, because there's there's not necessarily a kind of critique and a, an ability to see. Oh, it looks very shiny and positive. Often they're hyper positive. Mm. These kind of paradigms they they sell well. You know they don't tell you any bad stories. So of course we want to buy them, but. Underneath, there's a. I mean, the, the American Dream is a classic one. I mean, everyone everyone knows how to critique the American Dream. It's like it's so great, mm-hmm. you can be the president even if you're born in the ghetto. That's the, that's the theory of the American Dream. It sounds wonderful, but of course we know the flip side of that is that. So if you don't, it's your fault because technically nothing in the society is technically stopping you. That's so. That's a kind of example. It's it's not the example I'm, I want to use of bad thinking, but it's an example of a kind of national a national position that also has an incredibly dark underbelly and that, that then operates on the person who's busy going, well, why, why, why can't I be president? What's wrong with me? Why? It must be because I'm lazy. Okay. Like, well, maybe it's because you don't have any access to health care. You know, <laughs> that could be right. what's really holding up your presidential hopes. Yeah. So, but that's not, that doesn't come into the, the paradigm. And so I feel like there's plenty of those kind of versions of a quick fix, which, you know, which is also what I hope this program doesn't, as in our discussion, that's, that's to, to offer someone a new version of bad thinking that they can then use to sort of on the surface, give themselves a bandaid for half an hour, but actually then they take in yet another bit of sort of philosophical detritus or kind of quite pseudo philosophical detritus to then give themselves a really hard time actually yeah. in the back end, right. you know? So at the front end, it's like, great, great. I can do everything. And then actually at the end of that is like, yeah, but you're not doing enough, are you? I mean, that's got to be the logical kind of yeah. kickback, right, that we all live with. So there's a, there's an interesting thinker who comes out of uh, a Korean thinker called uh, Byung-Chul Han, who works out of Berlin, but he he's Korean. Mm. And um, he, he's a public intellectual, so he works across philosophy, but he delivers it in a in a kind of shape that is very readable. And often his books are quite, um, they're kind of repetitive in a sense that they're pedagogical. They're trying to get some clear, simple ideas through that I think he feels are fairly urgent. Mm -hmm. And so he says that we've moved from um, a disciplinary society, something like that Foucault would have critiqued and sort of looked at very well, which is about rules and discipline and striving to be good and repressing all the things we know, right, that we sort of think still are we're in. But he says, no, 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 we've moved into um, what he calls a a Leistungsgesellschaft or an Achievementgesellschaft, a society. Mm. And and this, this state basically enslaves us by saying, you can do everything. Mm hmm and the, the the silent message under that is, and so you should do everything. Mm. And this is like, this is horrific. Mm-hmm. This is horrific for us. Like we can't stop. Mm-hmm. You know, busyness is the new virtue because he says that this is sort of whispering and it's a much better, you know, if you want to talk about sort of social control, I'm not sure whether I would take it down that way, but it's, it's, it's actually more um, efficient as a form of social control. Mm-hmm. It's much better than the disciplinary society. He says we've already internalised the discipline. We come up through generations where we've been disciplined. We've got that anyway, and then this makes it even worse because now there's, no, it, there's nothing's forbidden. Mm-hmm. It's, the question is not don't have too much sex. The question is are you having enough sex? You could be having more. Mm-hmm. If to, to, to use a kind of classic mm-hmm. you know, idea of repression, it's like we're, we're nowhere near that. Now it's like how bad do you feel because you're not having as much sex as you should be able to have. Mm-hmm. So it's always there's no, there's no ceiling on what we should do. And so it, it, it flips us into this terrible place where we're kind of really enslaved to our own expectations of what we could possibly, you know, what we could achieve in a day, in a life. And, when, and apparently we can do everything. So mm-hmm. we should be doing everything is the kind of message that sort of cooks away in the back of in the back of people's heads. And so everyone's very, very tired. Melbourne drinks a lot of coffee. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Does that mean we're we're doomed to be continually disappointed or or angry at the world? So is is it our fault or is it the world's fault for not delivering what it should deliver to us? Maybe maybe people have different styles. I wonder. I mean, okay. some may have a tendency to self blame. Yeah. You know, they're not doing enough. They should do more. Everyone else must be doing more. Why am I not doing more? But other people, I'm sure, possibly in a more healthy way, directed outwards. Yeah. <laughs> you know, directed outwards and get very annoyed and envious and disappointed that the world doesn't deliver, yeah. in a sense. Uh, you were talking about expectations and saying how the society and culture that we're living in feeds us these expectations that are often impossible to live up to or at least we have expectations that never or, or may not come to fruition and that may lead us to feeling disappointed or spiteful or bitter against the world. Um, in your piece about the plain life, you, you talk about expectations in the context of anxiety and how a mismatch of what you expect from the world and what the world can actually deliver, um, how there's a, a disconnect between those two things. And, and it's actually in that disconnect, that condition, uh, that anxiety arises um, and that it's almost a, a defining aspect of the state of our time. It's Will a good you? attempt to summarise it. I, I don't think I could summarise my own essay very well, so thanks, <laughs> thanks for trying. It's, I, I sort of make a kind of teetering argument across those two things. So I'm sort of trying to think about the way that it's not the – it's not – it's not the expectations that we have at the surface. It's the ones that are, are pushing us without us seeing them. So in a way, expectation does sort of suggest it's a little bit, it's a little bit further back in our awareness. Um, otherwise, we'd just call it a want. Okay. You know, so it's be like, I just, you know, I really want to get a job in this city and work in this, whatever it is, institution. You know, that's just a want. Uh-huh. And, and then something about the disappointment from that I think is quite clean. I mean, disappointment's not a problem. We feel disappointed, you know, that's, that's it's whatever, it's a passage, it doesn't feel good for three hours and then something else interrupts that emotion with another emotion comes in. Yes. So a want that we don't get, we can probably deal with. But I, I think I was trying to, it, also interrogating myself and what I see around me and, and just that kind of, I always think about this with, you know, the, the kind of television as a mode, but then, you know, Netflix or whatever. I think it's so amazing when, you know, the, the things that are depicted, the amounts of wealth, let's say, that are depicted in cinema. It's, you know, it's so common that cinema depicts an upper-middle-class upper, upper middle class level of affluence. And you watch the film and you, you go on a holiday in, I don't know, in, in the Hamptons in America and there's a little family drama that plays out in a very nice house with a very nice lawn and there's, there's three cars and the children are all very beautiful and they go off to college, which, you know, costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, and it's all happening and you get this story, right? Yeah. So sometimes we watch it and it's a little holiday. But at the same time, you know, we're, we're also meant to identify with those characters and imagine that they're a little bit like we are. But if I kind of don't interrupt the idea that that's, that's a fiction and it's sort of those worlds, you know, people like to call it the virtual, the virtual world, you know, and the kind of world of the, the thick object, yeah. somehow if they get a little messy, I think that's an interesting moment. I don't, I don't know what it means. Mm-hmm. I don't know how it affects us, but... It's, it's interesting to kind of go, what are my material conditions? And yeah. I guess the, the counter of that in a sort of, um, in a kind of spiritual tradition, let's say, is often this practice of contentment. Yeah. So in, in, in Sanskrit, it's called santosha. And it's this idea that you, you practice being content with what you have. 
as a practice, not not as a not that you can feel content with what you have. It doesn't suggest that. It's that you you go about seeing if you can. You, you set it as an exercise, mm-hmm. a kind of exercise in training the self. And what does what does that look like to be happy? With what you have, and it's not really in fashion, right? Because that looks like you're a little underambitious. Uh-huh. I mean, that would look like underambition, or I don't know. Dare dare one say it? You know, you're a bit of a loser unless you want more than you have. Yes. You're not thinking big enough, hey? Are you? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so you know, this is what we're surrounded yeah. by, and obviously, you know, there's upward mobility, but there's also limits to upward mobility, and I think that's not really a message that also comes through that not everyone's moving up. Yeah. Actually, because we know that that um, you know distribution of wealth is becoming more unfair, not not less. Okay, okay. So, so yeah, it's something that we're all familiar with in the air. Probably most of us have felt it ourselves that there's that constant kind of dissatisfaction with what we have, um, but uh, it's just not available to all of us, just on a kind of purely purely economic terms. Maybe, maybe or not. We don't seem to be uh, prioritising systems of government that would that would make it more available to all of us. Yeah. I mean, that's not, that's not yeah. the neoliberal way. The neoliberal way is absolutely an agenda to take us back to a more divisive society. That is, it's, that is the, the, you know, whatever, the founding think tank of neoliberalism. It's like, let's, let's, let's undermine this socialist rubbish that's sort of spreading, spreading income. Let's, let's get, some, get, some, get the class system back. You know, and yeah. that's that. I think when anyone sort of, yeah, I, I think it's very interesting when we con- convenience is the thing. I think that is, it is the way that we agree to our own slavery. Uh-huh. In the sense that I sat in a restaurant tonight and I saw a fellow come in from Fedora or Deliveroo or one of the companies, and you know, he he may feel like he's his own CEO, and he's been sold an opportunity to have employment and possibly he can't get employment anywhere else, which is, which is an interesting way that something tricky is filling the gap in that, in that place where you can earn a dignified living. Yes. But at the same time, this, this kind of business is fed by convenience-loving inner Melbourne people. Yeah. But at the same time, it's, it's kind of subjecting a whole range of workers and there were recent kind of petitions about the danger to to workers on bikes you know they're they're just riding around melbourne and cars are very impolite in melbourne and impatient and it's it's very dangerous and nothing will catch those people if they get injured or you know i mean the medicare will catch them hopefully but that's that might mean that they can't earn a living after that particularly well so there's a way in which something about our love for convenience also helps us kind of enslave each other in certain ways, and that's yeah. that's a particular politics that I think um, I see around me and find it pretty shocking, actually. And I feel like it's a, there is a politics to saying, let's choose something very inconvenient. Let's choose something that we we have to go the long way around. Right. Let's 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 have an hour to get dinner because we have to walk to the restaurant and talk to each other as we go. But but everything's pushing for sort of faster, more efficient, more convenient, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Talking about neoliberalism. Um, On which I'm really not an expert, by the way. But, yeah, yeah, I mean, nor am I. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's um, both have it. Let's have an ill-informed conversation yeah. about this. Yeah. Um, I get the feeling that it's within its ideology that people should be having these expectations about life that probably won't be met because it, that encourages a certain way of being and acting and behaving within the world that feeds into that neoliberal 
ideology. Master plan. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the sinister master plan. <laughs> right. um, and obviously that, that, is the, that is the ideology that we're living within. That's, that's kind of the world that we're living in. And, and ideology, of course, as we know from sort of Alta Surts, it's the, it's the water you swim in. You can't see it. Right. For it to be ideology, you can't see it. Yes. And that's, that's really why, you know, the ushering in a, a certain regimes of what I might call bad thinking yeah. are particularly useful for, for these kind of slippages in, in things that I think we care about. I think, I don't know, I'm, I really want to pay tax. I thought about writing an essay about why I love paying tax. Uh-huh. You know, I like paying tax. You know, if I have some money and it's above a certain threshold, I want to pay the tax yeah. because I believe in a system that whatever, when I was a student, could look after me and now that I'm not a student anymore, should look after someone else. Yeah. So I don't think that's bad thinking. I think it's great thinking. Yeah. But, but I still know people who are just like, oh, the tax. And I'm just like, you're, you're an artist. You're, I don't know, you're someone who kind of would, would ima- one would imagine is, is kind of on the left edge of things but I'm finding that the left is appearing very soggy at the moment but the the addiction to convenience and mm. the, the addiction to also kind of getting a bargain saving money whatever it's just mm. like that is absolutely a trick it's a trick like there's there's no saving money there's no there's no cheaper way out there's no kind of quick it's the mm. sort of the quick profit and we saw it in the crypto bust right right you know like that's the fantasy and of course the fantasy is there because Life is really hard. It's uh-huh. really hard for people and they're really tired. People work really hard. They, they commute long distances in cars. It's not that easy. They're trying to support three children honourably, et cetera, et cetera. And so the, that's where the convenience also gets a foothold, but also exacerbates mm. the very conditions that, that make the life so difficult in the first place. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that seems to relate to individualism as well. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the idea that you really just have to be looking after yourself. You are the most important thing. And it's about where you're going and what you've done and who you are. That, I think, encourages or it discourages the kind of thinking that leads you to want to pay your taxes because that's all about contributing. And to me, feels like the kind of thinking that will lead to things being better for everybody. Um, But, yeah, it seems like there's a a sort of mass trend a kind of mass movement in the direction of individualism that's just sort of dragging along people who are typically seen as being on the, the, the left. Yeah, and maybe, I mean, that's, that's sort of, I speak about that a little bit, maybe a little bit in the essay, but it, it, I think there's messages, mess, messages floating around in a kind of um, neoliberal fashion, which is this idea of not being a loser, you know, not mm. being... Are you not priority number one? Are you not being an instrumental utilitarian thinker? Well, then what's your problem? And so even people who identify with, let's say, the left or even a Greens position um, on paper, for example, there's a contrast there because the individualism has really taken root in a particular way and there's a kind of – there's not actually enough – I don't know, actually not enough um, courage to sort of – to sort of go, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to be your version of a winner. Your version of a winner is ridiculous. You know, yeah. it's a, it's a ridiculous cliche, and I don't want to be it. So, and and just to make that sort of making a stand at a very sort of personal, almost aesthetic level. Yeah. And and that I think like, like the word is true. I don't, I don't use the word very often, funnily enough. But you've, you've, it's helpful that you remind me. It's like it is, it is a, it is an individual 
individualism that is quite, um, it's, been, it's become quite tenacious, I think. Mm. Um, yeah, I think I, I agree that there's a lack of courage, but perhaps there's also a lack of incentive to, <laughs> to, to not follow, not conform with the group because there's a risk of losing all of the benefits that you have with conforming, conforming with the group. It's funny how individualism goes with conforming to the group. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's quite yeah. interesting. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, it's, it shows that you will cling to whatever semblance of, of kind of groupiness there is, even if the, the nature of the group is to be an individual sort of alone that's, together. That's fantastic. The Monty, the Monty Pythons worked this out a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, another thing that you mention in your paper about the plain life, which actually relates to what you were saying about how often we don't notice the water that we're swimming within, uh, so to speak, is the role that fear is playing within our neoliberal society. Um, would you mind talking about that? I think I was just interested, and this again came from sort of a small, you know, there's little glimpses you have into your own process where... And I write about this in the essay, which was where I noticed that when I was actually frightened, I didn't look like I was frightened. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a long passage where it's like, I look like I'm telling it as it is. It looks like I'm, you know, serving it up. It looks like I'm getting hard-assed. It looks like whatever. But actually, it's because I'm really frightened and defensive. Mm -hmm. And so that that was just really interesting to me that I – and I've I've noticed this across my life that somehow just fear doesn't – fear doesn't seem to – present in a in a way that's very explicit you know when we're frightened we don't tend to put our hands to our cheeks and do the scream or something you know like it it it, we quickly enact something else to hide the fear from ourselves or from other people and there's layers and layers that are quickly built on top of the base emotion yeah and i i found it very helpful to to kind of say really daggy things to myself like wow i'm really frightened yeah, yeah, I'm quite terrified right now. You know, I, I don't know where my next job is going to be and I don't have that much money in the bank. And, and you know, it's just really scary living in a big city where rental prices are going up. And, yeah. and just to sort of state all the content that is absolutely sane and objective yes. to why I might feel quite scared. Yeah. And that that somehow sort of simplifies. It's, those things are still there. Those, yeah. those objective reasons to be frightened are still there, but the kind of t- um, toppling um, build-up of extra emotions on top of that can be a little bit stalled, I guess. Okay. Yeah. And as we said, emotions don't seem to be bad or wrong in and of themselves. They're, they're innate and mm. they're, they happen for good reasons. Yeah. And it also seems pretty self-evident that to not allow yourself to feel an emotion... You know, even if in a, you know, as long as you're sort of feeling it. Feeling it isn't behaving it. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Um, That that, that seems like a healthy thing to be doing. To to not feel an emotion doesn't just mean that it it kind of poofs out of existence. It's going to be having some kind of impact, surely, on your, your mental state or the way that you're behaving, whether it's unconscious or not. It's still a sort of psychological force that's that's in there whether it's transformed yeah. or otherwise yeah yeah no i think it, it gets thicker when you don't transform it all kind of and and i still find it strange to go but what what does feeling the feeling do how does that how on earth does that dissolve it but it really does mm-hmm. and it's really hard to know what the feeling i remember the first time i ever let myself be absolutely unapologetically enraged yeah enraged and it was kind of i don't know i was like in my 20s and 
this guy had come to stay with me from overseas, but he was kind of doing this weird toing and froing around like romance or something. And and it was just all a bit kind of dodgy and just messy and whatever. And, and instead of sort of feeling rejected or feeling kind of confused and messed around, I just suddenly just went, I am, this is outrageous, you know. And I just let this, not, and I didn't act it out on him, I don't think in any way. I just sort of inhabited this incredible rage. Yeah. And it was really clean. It felt like standing on a cliff and having, you know, like ice cold sea breeze just batter your, you know, long, long released hair or something like a scene from a romantic film or something. It was just like it was really clean and it was fantastic. Yeah. And it didn't it didn't impact on him. It wasn't like I needed to yeah. to give him a lesson or to let some hurtfulness rebound. It was just like I'm angry. It's private. I don't need to justify it to anyone. It's yeah. just it's just what the feeling is, and it was very very simple. And I, I sometimes I wish you know I could find that feeling again because it would it was just it it left so so little residue, even on the the other person. Nice, and that was nice, right? Yeah. It was nice, and it was and it was sort of you know maybe it was because I was young and energetic. It, it was it had a lot of force to it, and it was the first time when it wasn't second guessed. You know, yeah. it wasn't kind of bundled into oh, but I shouldn't. No, oh, but their side of the story and da 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 da. Maybe I'm misinterpreting. It's like no no no, forget all that. That's that's the psycho babble on top. That's the, secondary. The, yeah, the the force was just the pure emotion, and yeah. it was it was wonderful. But that that yeah. goes for sheer sadness, or and also joy, which which we don't get that much of. Mm-hmm. I don't think people speak that much about experiencing kind of wild elation, and you only get that if you have the other four, right. four or five, whatever you know, however yeah. many we want to have, you know. And perhaps that—that's. Do you think that could be a practice as well in itself? The, the practice of allowing yourself to feel your emotions, not needing to justify it to other people, but recognizing that it is justified. And and yeah, like a, a, a valid emotion of your own might not sit well well with another person, particularly when it's directed at them yeah, and it's sure. anger. Yeah. But then maybe you've got a good reason to be angry. I I, I think there's part of me that feels like being angry is kind of a, a low primitive emotion that that shouldn't be let no, out or should be, should be mastered. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's, I mean, a really, a really great book I read years ago, which was, you know, probably sort of bordering on the slightly flaky self-help Buddhist end of things. But, you know, I took something away from which was we feel anger when our boundaries have been crossed and it's crucial. Mm-hmm. That is what anger is. Someone crosses right. it, they go too far and we push back and the pushback is just the feeling of anger. So, Okay. Therefore, you know, after that, you know, after my little foray into whatever Buddhist psycho psychotherapy feminist, whatever it was, I was like, no, that's really simple. You know, that's really simple that yeah. if if I feel anger, something has crossed a boundary, even if my ideology doesn't have words for it. Mm. So I don't know. Even in gender relations, there's a lot of boundary crossing that goes on, often often in one direction, not always. Yeah. Um, and and the reaction to that is going to be anger. It's 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 sort of a fact. It's not, oh, maybe you can decide to be angry. It's it's that the anger comes up as if, like an immune system. Yes. It's like an immune system that just is. Yes. And so rather than acting it through, it's, I found it a really, you know, it's very basic. I feel almost sheepish admitting such basic things. But it's like, yeah, it's really helped me to go, oh, I feel anger. Ah, oh, that conversation wasn't so good. Yeah. That conversation wasn't that great. I thought it was lovely. I was like, oh, they're so lovely. And we had a lovely time. And then afterwards you're furious. Like, no, that wasn't okay. Yeah. And this can't be avoided in life. Of course, we're going to cross each other's boundaries and learn about where someone's particular boundary lies, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. This is not sort of we would get to the perfect place where there's no boundary crossing. But it's perfect yeah. information and it's really quick. Yeah. It's quick and clear. 
sort of so yes i don't i yeah the, the idea that it's lowly is is i don't i think it's lowly when it's when it's when people play it out as bad behavior and that's okay. that's another thing right right when you're expressing it in a, in perhaps not a pure and clean way is that what sure you mean? i mean we, yeah. i don't know we can want to hurt people <clears throat> right yeah yeah, rather than just the, the kind of honest expression of the, emo- the expression of the emotion, or even not expressed. I mean, you can express it inside. You okay, can, you can you can think the angry thoughts. You can say the worst possible terrible things. You can think about stabbing. I always think about stabbing the people with the plastic bags at the supermarket in the chest with a fork. Right? That's just what I was just like. These supermarket bags. Why do you have seventeen of them for seventeen items? I want to stab you in the chest with a fork. Right. I don't do that, and it's fine. Yes, <laughs> you, you, can, you can register that that, that thought, and then, yeah. and then and then that's information. It's information for, you. for me, you know. Yeah, do yeah. I want to take up plastic bag activism? Do I want to avoid the supermarket on nights when people are very tired and didn't bring their bags? You know, yeah. I can make a decision about that. And, and that's, that's the beauty of being a human being and having <laughs> having inhibitions and self control and, and planning <laughs> and things right. like that. That's nice. Um, but again, just going back to your piece about the plane life. You, you say that there's less felt fear. Um, we're, we're possibly not feeling fear as much. And that uh, it's almost as if there's a benefit or purpose in neoliberalism, or at least the system that we're living within, that people wouldn't be feeling fear. Uh, and perhaps because to feel fear would be to recognise that things around us are, in fact, fearful. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why that is, and I don't know if I'm right. I mean, I don't know if that's it's true that people aren't feeling their fear. I think the word mm. that floats around a lot is anxiety. People will self-declare as anxious very readily, and I mm. just, um, I, I just don't believe that anxiety is someone feeling fear. I think anxiety is a very, it's a very complicated kind of cocktail of heaps of things and layers of dissonances and it's, it's individual in every case and, and sometimes good therapists can work through that or someone who's very astute at observing their processes can sometimes untangle what leads to that sort of final state. So yeah. I don't know that anxieties have come to almost replace People aren't frightened; they're anxious. That's that's the that's the, the parlance of our times, right? Yeah. You ask someone, are you you know, are you frightened about having no job? And they'll just go, no, 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 I'm really anxious this week. And it's it's sort of this blanket thing of suddenly they've they've got anxiety like a sickness. Mm. But it's not like no, no, you know, I've got a really capricious boss, and um, he sort of likes to make these little hints that I might keep my job, or I might not get some shifts, or maybe I will get some shifts, or actually I'm not working as hard as I should, and all these vague things float around and. That's terrifying, yeah. right? Yeah. If I pay my rent from that job or whatever, and the boss is capricious, mm-hmm. then that's just categorically terrifying. Yeah, but sure. but the person may not track that, and it's just they're left with sort of, oh, I've got this sickness this week, my anxiety's up again. Right, and yeah. the, and the thing of like, yeah, but it tracks back to a certain moment, surely. Okay, so that's like a fuzzier less defined experience that you're aware of and you talk about but perhaps you have less control over it than you would if it was a fear um, which seems to be more simple and intentional you know it's it's about a definite thing yeah so um heidegger used to make that distinction which which I found useful in my PhD, actually. I was sort of trying to work out this. He talks about the difference between Furcht, fear, and angst or ängstlichkeit, so sort of anxiousness. And and he says fear is, you know, you're standing on the street and you look around and a bus is hurtling towards you, like you're frightened. That's yeah. really frightening. And that this other idea of angst or 
anxiety or Ängstlichkeit is kind of it's more sort of in the in the furniture you know it's kind of just seeping everywhere and it doesn't seem to have an origin it doesn't seem to whatever and mm-hmm. i guess if one can identify the things the the actual things in the world of which one uh, you know one is frightened of mm-hmm. then that's that really helps because there might be some anxiety left over and that can be the sort of the static of being a, a mortal. It can be the static. It can be just existential. It's like we're alive and, as we said at the start, we're fraught and we're suffering in a in a normal way there. Yeah, That's yeah. different from having real things to be frightened of and no one speaking of them or no one kind of identifying them because, in a way, once you move there, you move into politics. To sort of go, I've got a capricious boss, that's, that's already kind of poli- – in a way, it's political, like it's a critique – it's an oh, actual okay. critique of someone and it's accurate. Mm. You know, some days he's friendly, some days he sends you weird personal text messages which are inappropriate and other days da 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 I'm thinking of people I know who, yeah. you know, come to me having panic attacks and when we when we unpick it, okay. it's like, oh, your boss did some really weird stuff today. Yeah. That's why at, at nine o'clock that night you are having an utter meltdown. Yeah. And it's not because you have a mental illness. It's because this so wh- person who's in control of your finances messed you around. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and that's really that's really like why, why don't we go there? Why don't we go there first? It's hard to critique authority figures. That's not what our brains right. are set up for. Yeah, when they're a little bit trained from childhood to uh, adore the authority figure. Okay, and I suppose if they're an authority figure, then perhaps they have some role, whether it's sinister and intentional or, or just it happens kind of implicitly. They have a role in setting up the kind of system that you're living in which is perhaps geared towards you being disinclined to question their authority. Uh, absolutely. Or, or it's, it obscures also that you know that the system always covers up the fact that they may. And I use this word because I really love it. I think it's perfect. It's capriciousness. Okay. You know, that's, it doesn't mean that they're always nasty. Sometimes they're warm. Sometimes they're super friendly. Sometimes they breach your boundaries in ways that make you feel special. Mm. Da, 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 da. But actually they're capricious and it's the lack of sort of steadiness that, that seems to... I think send people wild or to mm. build into a kind of, you know, which way is the authority figure going to go next? Mm-hmm. What can we do to tackle that? What can we do to help uh, improve our situation? Yeah, I, I know we've covered a lot of different things, but. Sure. But. Um, well, I'm, I'm a practitioner, so I just, I think practice is, is helpful. But um, that's that's just what I, what I find helpful myself. And going to places where you can try to learn good thinking. And there's many of those. Some people go to therapeutic places. If they have a good therapist, they can learn good thinking. Other people find people they respect and maybe are very discerning about choosing those. Sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes we happen upon a good one. And this old idea of wisdom is really what good thinking is in a sense. Mm. Um, I notice I've got a lot of colleagues who work in philosophy and I not all of them, but some I profoundly respect because what they've learned through their philosophy training is good thinking. Mm-hmm. And I see it operating in the way they process information and their, their lack of reactivity. They don't jump really fast. To, and, I, and I feel like I've got lots to learn from, from that training because it's, it hasn't been my training. But I see it and there's a steadiness to the way the brain works, which is like watching the way the body of an elite athlete works. Mm-hmm. You know, Federer, to use the old, old worn-out example, it's like he's not – he doesn't waste energy. He doesn't make false, stupid moves. He's not – you know, he's not kamikaze mm-hmm. in a way. And so we can also be like that with our thinking. Yeah. And that's rare. We don't see it very often. Mm-hmm. Often we see extreme reactivity, 
charm. Charm is a different thing. It's not really to do with thinking. But, you know, that we're, the, the people often that we admire, that, we're, that, that are put before us as admirable types, you know, I don't know. Good thinking is amazing. And we recognise it when we see it. I wonder. I hope so. I hope so. I don't know, but it cannot look very fashionable. Yeah. And I don't know that it's very always very beguiling. And it's that sort of taste thing. I think we have to refine our taste for what good thinking looks like. And we can just never have happened upon someone who does it. Yeah. So, you know, when, when one encounters a figure who's sort of dedicated their life to a kind of thought or to a or to wisdom of some kind, it's it's often really interesting. Yeah. You know, but I don't think many people even bump into it. Okay. Yeah. So, so you say practice is the the best thing that you would... Uh, for, no, it's one of the things <clears throat> that for me I find pretty uh, uh, reliable. What, what kind of practice? So, so you mentioned philosophy. Philosophy is definitely a practice for sure. Um, personally, I sort of have a background in, in sort of sitting practice, which looks a lot like Zen. And, you know, I've come through various Zen, Zen um, contexts and I'm a yoga practitioner and I kind of write and also writing for me is, is a practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, my theoretical work through, through my research at the university is, um, among other things, uh, has quite an emphasis on this idea of practicing and theorizing um, the kind of micro-operations and ontological foundations of practicing because I think practicing is this strange laboratory where rather than the kind of grinding, suffering, a little bit different, a little bit different, a little bit different, to yeah. which we're kind of trained to be addicted. Um, practicing offers like actual breaks with with the paradigms that have kind of enslaved us. Okay. Um, and and that's because of the way it works. This is getting very complicated. Now, this, this is no, the, this sort is of the way it works with difference and repetition, um, which philosophy has done a lot of work on. Um, Deleuze, Gilles Deleuze is, is sort of a very obvious person, but he's got a long line of predecessors. Yeah. And... So the way of, because difference and repetition constitute time, they actually are the substance of what, what makes time. And so if you want to play with the way time messes with us, which mm. also links to habit and habit forms the present, mm. then we have to work at a very fine level. So practicing, you know, let's say yoga, yoga, it doesn't matter. The poses are sure, the good, you know, mm. definitely don't hurt yourself and don't get into sadistic yoga teacher relations or whatever, but it's it's a little laboratory where you can work with difference and repetition in a way that can sometimes sometimes open yeah. into a spaciousness that can make a break to the sort of patterns in which we're trapped. Yeah. So just in case people aren't fully with us with regards to what we mean by practicing, um, what's the difference between doing a, a crappy a job, just like a day job that's kind of earning you some money. What's the difference between that kind of activity and practising? Sure, it's a good question. I'm I'm trying to write a book on this at the moment. Oh, it's written, but I'm trying to make it clearer <laughs> so, that, so that the people can come along with the idea. Um, so I would say that practising is a mode of activity. It's not any particular kind of activity, although some activities that we classically know, I mean, whatever, flower arranging, um, long distance running sometimes, mountain climbing sometimes, yoga, meditation, uh, fencing, whatever, you know, there's a number of things that kind of we probably associate, oh, yes, that's a kind of a practice. But it could be many, many things. Okay. Um, m- what, I've, what I've come upon in my research is that we need to have a practice, which would be a kind of activity, that, that has got enough repetition and small difference within it. So it's not something that changes every time wildly. 
Otherwise, it doesn't cohere enough to kind of form a practice and to, oh. to act as a container. So we don't just keep improvising. Let's say it, it, I work within a yoga tradition and I didn't sort of for a long time. It was much more improvisational and I thought I should follow how I felt and that's much more free. And then I kind of understood, sure, that's fine. That's, that's very pleasant. But it's the regularity of the container itself that then lets something wild happen inside of it. So oh. if you vary the container too much, you won't get the variation at the heart of it. Okay. If that makes sense. Or not variation, the transformation at the heart of it. And is that a, a, a sort of rare, subtle, nuanced, valuable kind of transformation? That you know, yeah, for? like I think we can, we can kind of wake up new. We can wake up someone else, you know, a different self in a way because we go to the very mechanisms that make the self in time and we can kind of slip slip the, the bonds of those mechanisms which really hold us. You know, that's, that's the mechanisms of habit. As, as Deleuze and Guattari famously said, you know, I is a habit. Wow. You know, the, the self that I see is just a habit. And when we find the self that we are so oppressive and so, you know, we feel like a prisoner to this self as, as at the same time as being extremely attached to it and defensive of it and all those things. It's like it's just a habit and sometimes we can slip, we can slip through the kind of ba- the bonds of habit. It's very difficult yeah. because habit is linked to the present and to it's linked to what makes us have a sense of the present. So you, yes. it's practicing is really interesting in that sense. So you need the you need the structure, you need um, the repetition within the structure, and then then which brings us a little bit back to the beginning of the the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to be able to to perform those let's say those behaviours, whatever they are, the flower arranging, the the rowing, the gardening, whatever it is that you're doing, the, the cooking, and not um, not seek for variation in their behaviour. So that's the danger of the striving. Uh-huh. If you get on a striving track, you'll only ever be on a striving track and the thing you actually want from the striving will absolutely never appear. Yeah. Like almost definitionally, it's, yeah. it's you preclude it through the striving. I mean, Zen talks yes. about this, and heaps of things talk about this. We know that. So, um, so that's that's part of practicing. Has to kind of really, really relax, relax a lot, mm-hmm. and that that comes often with a certain um, competency in the behaviour, okay. which we know. You know, whatever Federer, he is a practitioner of tennis, and so you see, there's this incredible relaxation in the way that he approaches the ball, and that's not how you or I would do it. We'd be very tense and we'd waste a lot of energy. We'd yeah. be very worried and, you know, and we'd be very useless on the court. Yeah. And so he is so familiar and so um, it's sort of so part of him, those, those yeah. behaviours, that then it's like he can work then at another register. Yeah. He can work at another place, not at that just that level of behaviour, and it's a different place to have it. So I would I would sort of say well maybe Federer has a habit of tennis sure but then there's something more there's something extra. Can you dispense any advice to to, to listeners about how Do they to want f- advice? People hate advice. Well, <laughs> maybe not advice, but but perhaps any anything you learned about finding or selecting or trying out certain practices that worked for you. I mean, how, how do you how do you know that you found the right one? Are there any kind of guides to that? I mean, is it just a Avoid the as... showy operator. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'd say. Okay. <laughs> Avoid okay. the showy operator. Good rule of thumb. Yeah, well, in a way, <laughs> I think, you know. Uh-huh. Um, 
but but I suppose I suppose you would move go towards something which you just have uh, a kind of innate interest in for whatever reason. Someone might be interested in yoga. That might be the thing that they yeah, explore as a absolutely. practice, or you know, yeah. whatever it may be. Yeah, I suppose for sure. You just gotta gotta follow that intuitive interest. Perhaps. Look, I do I do feel fairly strongly, but again, it's not <clears> advice. It's just like what I've noticed for myself is that it's really good to have some time in the day that is pretty much empty. Mm-hmm. And I think the device is interrupting that, you know, so to, to kind of honour in the day a window of boredom. But I'm not calling it, no, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be boring, but it might be. It might yeah. seem, you know, when one starts to be quite boring. And I think that that is extremely, um, I don't know, it's, it's kind of amazing. It's amazing to just have a gap in the momentums and inertias of the way things run on. So I, I find that, you know, whether that's called practice or something else or lying in the park staring at the sky alone, doesn't really matter. But I think it, sort of a sense that we, we so much goes into us in terms of stimulation. It, it's really, we know, we've read the things, you know, that compare the person in the 18th century to us and we know those, those statistics. And yeah. so we are really filling up all the time. Yeah. And and that does something to an organism. If it were if it were food that we were filling up so much with, we'd we'd die, right? We right. The, the the intestines couldn't get through it. That we would be in a serious situation, <laughs> yeah. right? But we kind of don't imagine that we could equally have that kind of digestive crisis at the level of stimulation. And I'm sure we've expanded our capacity, and that's that's amazing. And people are fine. But it's it's just nice to have a break, and it's very practical, and I think it's very cheap. Yeah, you know, it's it's affordable and accessible to everybody, and and artists are always those people who know to value that, and and not artists in the sense of identity card carrying artists, but the part of us, the the part of everyone that is an artist, mm-hmm. you know, in that sense of being able to meander with your thoughts and feel whimsical, and you know, do something for no good reason, you yeah. know, something benign for no good reason, yeah. and I think that that. That artists know to do that, and in a way, that's sometimes what art making is. It's making things for no good reason, right. and and the world is so much better for yeah. for that. And so that that one doesn't have to get get acknowledged as an artist or as a creative person or be told one has talent or something. Because I think those those labels can be really awful, mm-hmm. and they are awful. They they create inclusions and exclusions that are quite violent. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, to to do that thing that artists do, which is to sometimes just to do not much, yeah. and and I you know and that's not that's not watching Netflix actually, yeah. that's 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 also downtime. That's downtime and it's great and you know it can be a fun time, but it's not the same as lying in the park looking at the sky. It's not the same mm. as going for a walk without the device running. It's just I love the flight mode. I love the flight mode. I use it all the time, not on planes. I think it's really because somehow things go quieter in a strange way. Yeah. Even though the phone's not ringing or the message, it's it's still more quiet than having the phone on silent. And yeah. I can't really explain what that is, but you know, and it's a little bit confronting, you know. I've I've shut I've shut the the access to yeah. the, the world can't get me, and I can't get the world, and then I'm left with myself, which might be terrifying, but also it, it could be some good company. Yeah. <laughs> I might not be such bad company. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I'm afraid on that note. We've we've come to the end of our time, and you've been lovely company. Thank you, Thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Joe.
You've been listening to Dialogues on 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. You can download the podcast by searching for Dialogues on your podcast app. And email us on dialogues3cr at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Just search Dialogues 3CR.